Welcome, all of you happy warriors, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, you spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote the dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many horrible social pathologies that it generates. When I, your rabbi, promise to reveal how the world really works, it is in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans of history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome, those hideous hermaphrodites and those fanatical feminists running our media, education and government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women, but oh, what damage they manage to inflict. Well, never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together, we will replace diffidence with determination, and we will displace the divided councils of doubt with the steady eyes and firm hearts of those who, just like us, know where they are going and know just how they're going to get there. We strive for success. That's right. Success in our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our finances. That's our work and that's what we do. And I often tell you that politics is nothing other than the practical application of our most deeply held values. That's right. Confiscating hideously high rates of taxation from hard-working families in order to underwrite multi-generational dysfunctionality, that is clearly somebody's morality. It isn't mine, and it isn't yours, But if it wasn't somebody's, our political structure would not have created a welfare system that is as deeply destructive as the one that currently continues to destroy family life in America. Politics is nothing more than the practical application of our most deeply held moral values. And so... The reason I don't usually talk about specific political developments is because you can open your newspaper as easily as I can. You can listen to the news on the radio as easily as I can. You can watch the news on the internet as easily as I can. And so what I have to do in order to add value is equip you with the tools 
for analysis. I have to enable you to pull down tomorrow morning's headline and analyze it and interpret it in order to understand the moral values that are driving it and the ultimate political consequences, the impact that is likely to have on your finances, the impact it's likely to have on your faith, the impact it's likely to have on your friendships and on your families and on your neighborhoods. All of that is part of understanding how the world really works. One of the important moral questions that is worthwhile looking at, because so much of our political process is driven by the arguments around this particular point, is that it's worth understanding. What am I speaking about? Well, about a very simple moral question. Should every single child born into the world enjoy equal opportunity to every other single child born into the world? Good question, straightforward question. And the answer is that we'd all love to answer yes to that. But that's not the entire question. The real question is, what do we empower government to do in order to make sure that every single child has the same opportunities as every other single child? And again, the decent person responds, sure, I'm happy to have the government do whatever it needs to do to make sure every child has an equal opportunity for a good life and a life of success and happiness. And in so saying, you probably assume that this means the government removing various impediments. And your sense is, well, how can this possibly be anything but good? After all, do we not want to rip away from the fabric of society anything at all that can imperil the possibility of any particular child from having as much of a chance at the American dream or any other country's dream than any other child? Who could possibly oppose that? But again, I am misleading you because I am speaking in political platitudes, the kind you are accustomed to hearing from politicians. And in so doing, I am obscuring the fundamental facts that need careful examination. Let me pose for you a vision of two different little children each born to a different mother. And then I want you to tell me, what will you empower the government to do to give both these children the same shot at the future? Both of these children are born to a mother who has given birth to six older siblings. In both cases, this is her child number seven. 
What is more, in almost any large American city, these two women live within eight miles of one another. But their two children, the way I see it, do not have anything close to an equal shot at the future. Let's take a look at these two women. Woman number one is a religious Catholic woman in a long-time stable and tranquil marriage to her husband, who is also the father of the six first uh, children. And this man and woman between them have brought seven children into the world. The man has worked two jobs to enable his wife to stay home and homeschool those children. They have enriched the children's lives with not only a very solid grounding in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they also understand history, and they also understand science. And in addition to that, they have learnt to play a musical instrument, and they participate broadly in the community in a very giving kind of a way. That is child number one, with six older siblings and a mother and a father. And I now have to paint a far sadder picture of child number two. As I said, child number two came into the world only a few miles away from child number one. His mother has also given birth to six older children, each by a different man, none of whom she was married to. Seven children, seven different fathers, none of whom are around. The woman lives with, along with her mother and the seven little children and grandchildren, living to a large extent on welfare and benefits. And um, the woman, the mother, uh, has a history of alcoholism and uh, drug abuse. I've painted the picture, right? I don't have to go any further. Unfortunately, any large city has huge numbers of this kind of situation. I'm not going to participate in political doublespeak by calling it a family. Happily, most American cities also have large numbers of the first kind of family. They may not always be Catholic. They may be uh, uh, Protestants. They might be Jews. They might be Latter-day Saints. But the picture, in every instance, is pretty much the same. And now here are these two newborns. And in our little thought experiment, you're looking at these two delightful little bundles of human baby perfection. And you tell me that these two children have the same shot at life? Really? You don't, you don't really believe that, do you? As much as you wish it were true. But now, as we go to a quick pause, and we'll come back and look at it further, trying to see what is it exactly you'd like the government to do to fix up this dreadful wrong, let's also take a moment to be aware that uh, this is, after all, a service that 
I bring you. And it is a service that is associated with the larger ministry that I bring you, which is making ancient Jewish wisdom accessible to people of every background in ways that are intended to enhance your life in the areas of family, finance, faith, friendship. I call them the four F's. The way you explore this is by going to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. But uh, specifically today, we have something new for you. This is its debut. And uh, you you know that if you go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, you can subscribe to uh, ma- weekly mailings called a thought tool, which are exactly what it sounds like, a tool for thought. And the idea is to to, again, provide you with a practical and applicable permanent principle that you can use in your life. And it's also intended to give you something to talk about, you know, beyond royal marriages or, or sports or the latest political outrage. No, have something to talk about with your family at dinner time. Have something substantive, a question to raise, uh, an intriguing topic to discuss. And we collect these and we put about 50 of them in a book. And we've done that. That's volume number one. We've done volume number two. It's called Thought Tools, volume one, Thought Tools, volume two. Thought Tools, volume three, uh, is now available on Kindle. That's through Amazon. That's by an instant digital download. And so, uh, yes, you can go to Amazon and immediately download Thought Tools, volume three by uh, myself and my wife, Susan. And uh, you will then immediately have something I think you will find to be genuinely useful. And um, we are going to take a quick pause. But uh, before we do, I think what I better do is give you a little musical clue as to where we go from here. I'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and uh, your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. And uh, one of the ways that the world really works is that music has always provided an avenue directly into the soul. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that several generations have already been seduced by the beguiling words and the enchanting melody of me and Bobby McGee. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I actually remember hearing that as a kid and and being entranced by it, thinking to myself, yeah, right. But think about this for just a moment. Would you rather walk down a dark street after nightfall in a strange city where all the people around you have restructured their lives 
Along the lines of freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose? Or would you rather be walking down a street after dark in a strange city where all the inhabitants have structured their lives in such a way so that each one has a great deal to lose? Each one has built a family Each one has a spouse about whom they care. Each one has siblings whom they love. Each one has children to whom they're utterly devoted. Each one has acquired and built up a nest egg, a few dollars. Now, which environment, in which environment are you likely to be safer? In which environment are things going to go better for you? walking down a street where everyone else on the street has nothing left to lose, and boy, do they feel free. Or do you think you might be better off in a dark street where everybody around you has a great deal to lose, and none of them think of themselves as free? They are bound with binds of responsibility to their uh, families, They are bound by chains of responsibility to their jobs, to their work, their careers, their professions. They have chains of responsibility to their organizations. They're not free at all. They don't feel free. They do feel fulfilled. They do feel happiness. They do feel deep inner joy. Part of it is that they have a great deal to lose. The song is a fearful lie, and yet it is so very seductive. Uh, By the way, I'm actually working and preparing. It's it's taking me a bit of time, but it'll be ready in a week or two. I'm going to actually do a show right here. One of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin shows coming up is going to be devoted to the power of music from where it obtains its strange ability to penetrate the soul and to powerfully impact people's emotions. We'll talk about that. But for now, enough to hear that song and just know exactly what it's really saying. Here, listen to it again. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. See what I mean? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And as you can tell, I'm trying now to inoculate it, inoculate you against the song, so that uh, in future, whenever you hear the song, you don't close your eyes and slip into a daydream and say to yourself in a fantasy world, oh, how great it would be to be in a world of total freedom with nothing left to lose. No, that is incredibly destructive, incredibly damaging. And that takes us right back to what I'm speaking about. That takes us right back to the basic idea of these two children I've been telling you about. Two little kids, beautiful bundles of babyhood, but each with a starkly different future awaiting. Now, what is to be done about that? 
Well, if you are really true to your conviction that every child must be given the chance to start off in life with every equal opportunity to every other child, and that government has the job of doing that, if you really believe that, then I fear greatly that you must now advocate for every child to be taken away from its parents very soon after birth and to be reared by the group, by the society, by the agents of government. But wait, you might say, I've heard of this before. Isn't that exactly what the kibbutz movement did in Israel in the early years of the state and even before that? Right? Soon after World War II, uh, yeah, the kibbutz movement, absolutely. They did take children away and raise them in a, in a special children's section of the kibbutz. And uh, the parents were free. Of course, it was sold partially as a freedom for the parents to be able to work without worrying. And they get to see the kids. Everybody eats dinner in a huge big dining hall. And their nurses and, uh, and specialists to help the children with their meals and help the children with their schoolwork. That's an idea you have heard before, is it not? Well, you're absolutely right. And you have to remember that those who shaped early Israel were unreconstructed Bolsheviks. That's right. Israel was meant to be one of the early socialist paradises. And guess which country in the world was the first country to recognize the newly formed state of Israel? I'll give you three guesses. No. No. And no again. The answer is that the very first country to recognize the state of Israel was Russia. That's right. Israel uh, declared independence on the 14th of May, 1948. And uh, the Arab armies immediately attacked. And three days later, on the 17th of May, 1948, the Soviet Union extended recognition to the state of Israel. Sure. Why not? Because it was founded as an extension of the socialist dream. <laughs> That's right. Well, of course, today, um, nothing could be further from a socialist dream. Uh, Israel is today a, uh, a country of profound capitalistic success uh, and freedom. And guess what? The old idea of children being raised by society, by the institutions of gone, finished. That kind of old-style kibbutz, finished, gone. See, socialism seems to run its natural course through about 70 years. That seems to be about it, right? Just as in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, um, the uh, uh, the Babylonian exile, again, socialism against a Jewish ideal, about 70 years is as good as it goes. And as I've mentioned before, we saw that with the Soviet Union, and uh, I think we can look 
towards interesting things happening in Cuba in the not-too-distant future. But at any rate, uh, you see what this means, that if you want little James and little John to have exactly the same life, you're going to have to take them away from their parents at the very outset and raise them all together. If you're not willing to do that, this would call into question your entire commitment to the basic idea that all little children, newly born children, should come into the world with identically equal opportunity. If you're not willing to make that a reality, then it is nothing but a platitude. It doesn't mean anything. It's simply not true. There are a deeper moral implications as well, which is uh, chiefly the idea that you've got to settle at an early point the question of whether a person owes more to his own child than he does to your child. Do you owe more to your children than the children of society? Well, this is not a simple question because the implications, once again, of what appears to be a very simple moral question are very real. For instance, the inheritance tax. The inheritance tax is all about that basic moral question, which is, do you owe more to your children or do you owe the same to all the children in society? And that favoring your own child is unseemly, immoral, and unacceptable. You've got to settle that question because it is on the basis of that moral question that the political decisions regarding a death tax, or sometimes called an inheritance tax, are going to be established. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain that immediately upon our return, okay? Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And if you have not yet acquired one or all the volumes of Thought Tools, then do us both a favor, because I would like to sell it to you and at the end of the day, I will value the few dollars you pay for it more than I value the copies I have in my inventory. And you will value the benefit you get from those books more than the dollars you pay for them. We both end up happier with the transaction. Uh, the books, each one containing about 50 thought, thought tools, literally tools for thought, but each one is a principle of ancient Jewish wisdom, some timeless truth that you can apply in your family, in your finances, in your life of faith or socially. Uh, in some way or another, it contains something that you can deploy immediately to improve your life. Apart from anything else, as I say, one of the best uses of, of Thought Tool, and we love the fan mail, we get a load of letters from people who tell us what it has done for family dinners. Uh, some families have devoted one night a week to Thought Tool Night, where they discuss it. And almost all the letters we get speak in terms of wonderment and astonishment 
at what they hear from their children. They say, we never thought that our children were capable of such deep insight. People really get exciting responses from their children when they raise one of the issues that crops up in a particular thought tool. Anyway, there it is, uh, The Thought Tools, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And now, Volume 3 is also available on Kindle. So no reason why you shouldn't scoot over to your favorite Kindle store that starts with an A and uh, download either onto your phone or your iPad or your computer or your Kindle device, Thought Tool Volume 3. Just released, by the way, on Kindle. You got it. And again, having them in hard copy in book form, easy. Just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, head over to the store, take care of it. Your rabbi, that's me, back with you in just a moment. Here we are back again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Where I, your rabbi, revealing how the world really works, as usual. And um, at the same time, I thank you again. I, I, I do this every week, but I, I mean it. I feel it so very sincerely. Uh, there are those of you who are actively helping to promote the show. Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate it. Um, you can do that on Facebook. You can do it on Twitter. That's right. Because um, if you follow me on Twitter at Daniel Lappin, just Daniel Lappin on Twitter, or on Facebook at Rabbi Daniel Lappin, then you will be sent, you will receive, or you will see the notification that the new podcast has been posted and can be listened to. And then, obviously, many of you are forwarding that, or reposting it, or directing people or however you do I don't even know exactly how you're doing it but I do know that week by week we gain terrific numbers of new downloaders new listeners and the only way that can be happening largely is through your efforts so a great big fat thank you to you from Susan and me for your help in getting the show out and uh We uh, wrapped up the last segment talking about the inheritance tax or the death tax. Well, once again, we've just got to ask ourselves, what is the underlying moral principle behind the death tax? And the answer is very simple. Everybody agrees that when a person passes on and goes on to his father in heaven, His possessions no longer belong to him. And because the King Lear vision that William Shakespeare so magnificently demonstrated in the eponymous play um, was that for King Lear to have given away all his possessions before he passed on, not such a great idea. And so one of the very basic principles that is found in the five books of Moses is a pattern of inheritance. And so we, uh, we have established the idea that a man or a woman can write a will. They can specify what they want in the way of disposition of their worldly goods upon their demise. They can do that. 
if a person doesn't do it in under the law of many, many countries, including the United States, uh, the, the government pretty much gets to determine what happens, and that's not a good outcome. So people should absolutely have wills. But in a, a biblical system, if a person doesn't leave a specific will, uh, then it is very clear what happens. His children inherit him, period. That is what happens. Again, uh, if there are no children, then uh, it goes back towards his parents. If they're no longer, no longer alive, it goes to their children. In other words, there's anybody born of human beings, anyone born of a human mother, uh, has inheritors somewhere. But that's a biblical perspective, of course. Uh, but what is fundamental, and it's something that I think most people have an intuitive feeling for, and it's certainly made abundantly clear in Scripture, and that is that uh, the a person's children are his or her natural inheritors. That's how it is. Now, there is a group of people, the same kind of people who came up with the kibbutz movement, uh, the same kind of people who sang the international, who believe that the family has to be abolished. The family is a bad institution in society. Yes, that is part of the Tower of Babel vision. It's part of the Nimrodian vision. It's part of the socialist vision. It was certainly part of the Obama administration's vision. Family is not a good thing. And there have been numerous attempts to chip away at the foundation of the family over the last 60 years it's been going on. So uh, recognize it when you see it. The inheritance tax is a huge blow against the family because a person puts so much more energy and love and devotion and dedication into his work and into his family when he knows that his children and maybe his children's children will be ultimate beneficiaries of everything that he works for and everything he builds. And uh, along comes a socialistic or communistic or progressive worldview and says, hello, why should Tom, Tom and Betty's children be better than all the other children in society. All children should start off with an exact equality with all other children. And now you're threatening to damage that. You are suggesting that Tom and Betty's children should each get $5,000 because Tom and Betty passed on leaving enough money for each of their children to inherit $5,000. What about all the other children on their block? They're not getting $5,000. What about all the other children in that town? What about all the other children in the city, in that country? What about all the other children of the whole world? No, surely the only way to do this is for Tom and Betty's money to be divided among all the children of the city, of the town, of the country, 
by the way, yes, the United Nations has dreamed of a worldwide inheritance tax. Yes, indeed. Uh, If the bureaucrats of the UN have their way, there will be a tax imposed on every on the belongings, on the assets of every person who passes away anywhere in the world, it goes towards the United Nations. So please don't uh, don't laugh at me when I say all the children of the world. That is the moral vision of United Nations bureaucrats. But you don't have to go as far as United Nations. Many countries in the world, including the United States, uh, have at different times pushed for various inheritance taxes. Uh, in England, I believe it was in the years soon after World War, I'm sorry, you know what, I don't remember if it was World War One or World War Two, but England had, I believe, a 95% inheritance tax, essentially everything, basically saying that the morality of just these children being singled out for superior benefits just because of something that happened in a previous generation is not fair, it's not moral, it's not right. And so these children should be like all the other children in the world. And guess what? Government will take care of the distribution, or should I say redistribution, because you can't expect Tom and Betty to write a will that'll give every child in the country an equal share of their money. So government will take care of it. Government will be the intermediary agent. And so all that will happen is the government will take ideally all, but recognizing that there still remain in many countries enough people with an intuitive sense of what is ultimately moral and what is evil, uh, they realize that it's very difficult to right away impose a 98 or 99 percent inheritance tax. So they come in with a 60 or a 50 or a 40 percent inheritance tax. But that's just discussing a matter of degree. We're talking quantity. But if we're talking quality, We have to acknowledge the fundamental evil of that concept. But it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of this basic question of, are your children entitled to be special to you? Or have you got to care equally about all the children of the world? It comes out of the basic moral question, which is, do you truly believe with full conviction that every child born is entitled to have an exactly equal shot at success as every other child that is born? That is really the moral question. And it is of those questions that flow decisions such as the inheritance tax. See, that's how it works. And if we're not willing to make this basic position clear, if we're not willing to go to the barricades and grab the pitchforks and head out into the streets to fight over this basic moral question, which is that, yes, I do love my children more than I love your children. Sorry, but I do. And uh, in, in a famous story of a bureaucrat that was talking to a politician on television saying, no, I care about your children just as much as I care about mine. And the person said, well, in that case, tell me their names. And the point was made. The politician tried to maintain this fiction. All children have to be exactly the same in the eyes of the state, at least. Well, how far is the state willing to go? If that's truly a deep-seated conviction, if that's an underlying principle of equality, then 
freedom has to be dismissed because children have to be taken from their parents and all educated in exactly the same way in a government indoctrination camp. Oh, pardon me, I meant to say a public school. Back with you in just a moment here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. But first of all, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, the product and resources for your delight and enjoyment uh, is our three volumes of Thought Tools. Now they are available as a set. They are also available individually in paper, and they'll come to you in the mail. Or you can also get them on Kindle, electronic download, instantly, as soon as we finish the show. You just go to Amazon and you look for Thought Tools by Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. And uh, there you got it. You download them and you got them. Volumes 1, 2, and as of today, for the first time, Volume 3, now available as well. Okay, and uh, thanks again for your efforts in publicizing the show. Back with you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, revealing how the world really works. And perhaps you are becoming a little more hospitable to the idea that your children should be the beneficiaries of your dedication, your selflessness, your sacrifice, your devotion, more than all the other children of the country. Let their parents worry about them. When you go to great lengths to drive your children to extra lessons in mathematics or to learn dance or music or you take your children to sporting events, you apparently may be coming closer to the idea that you don't have to feel bad that you're not taking all the other children of America along with you. When you take your children to the ice cream store and get each of your children a delicious huge cone of ice cream, do you feel bad that you're not also getting an ice cream for all the other children in your neighborhood, in your block, on your street, in your city? No, because you accept that you labor for the benefit of your children, the fruit of your loins, those children who came into the world because of the love and the passion you and your spouse had for one another have for one another still, I hope. That's how they're in the world. And they are the living embodiment of that unity that you and your spouse created. And as such, they are unique and special to you and your spouse. And that's entirely appropriate and exactly how it should be. And the idea that uh, when your time is up, that all the goodness you have been blessed to accumulate should go to improve the lives of your children and not be distributed, redistributed, to all the children of society, you're good with that as well. But wait, (laughs) here's the downside. If you've been in agreement with me up to this point, how do you feel about the fact that when your child wants to get into a prestigious university, you discover 
that your child cannot get in. You know why? Because a certain number of places are reserved for alumni. That's right. Because the family down the block from you, well, the father there, he went to Yale. And guess what? His child's application to Yale goes ahead of your child's application to Yale. You know why? Because of a legacy advantage that is part of the policy of the university. Now, um, I do not know whether Yale or Harvard or Princeton or uh, Penn or any of the other Ivy League, you know, I don't know if they still practice this. They certainly, for sure, did until a little while ago. And in spite of the fact that for this reason, because I only arrived in this country long after I'd finished my schooling, uh, I naturally didn't attend any American university. And uh, as a result, None of my children were able to get in. So I understand that. In spite of that, I very much hope that that policy still continues. It used to be very much a part of getting into Oxford and Cambridge in the United Kingdom. I do know that that was banished oh, uh, more than 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago even. Um, the British got, got rid of that uh, to my disappointment because... Getting rid of that is making a moral statement, which is that we don't want Tom and Betty's children to benefit in any way over the sacrifice, because of the sacrifices that Tom and Betty made in their lives, over another child whose parents were self-indulgent, never married, didn't do anything to raise their children, did nothing for their children, did nothing with their own lives, all children have to have exactly the same shot. Well, we've got to understand the implications of all of this. And so, yes, it is true that we have to be willing to live in a world where there are other children who inherit large sums of money that uh, we didn't inherit. There are other people who are enlarging a third-generation family fortune, whereas we came from a very modest background, and whatever we've got, we had to build ourselves. And yet, I do believe that most of us would put that freedom ahead of the forced equality of the heavy hand of government. You see, that really is the choice we have to make. Either we believe in freedom and the biblically rooted concept that there is a very special and unbreakable bond between me and my children and you and your children, and that you are not under any obligation to provide my children with exactly what you provide to your children. And that seems self-evident. But you see, when large groups of people live together and form a society with laws and agreements, then those laws tend to grow out in a very consistent way out of the moral agreements and the moral positions that we take, which is why it is so important 
that we understand the underlying moral issues and we select the right positions because that's what our choice is. Either we believe that every child has to be exactly the same. Every child must be exact. In that case, the only thing to do is every child must be removed from their parents. Every child must be given an identical education. Those who are very bright and have been endowed with the more IQ will just have to be slowed down and they'll have to go at the speed of the slower ones. And everybody's going to end up with exactly the same education. Of course, needless to say, in the real world, there's no way that would ever happen. It would would become an unbelievably unwieldy mess. But at least in theory, that is the idea. Uh, What do we do about the fact that uh, some people are uh, likely to be particularly good-looking and they may marry somebody else who's also particularly good-looking And they may end up with children who are well above the national mean when it comes to attractive looks. And are we still going to say that every child starts off with exactly the same opportunities? Of course not. It's not real. It's not how the world really works. Not at all. It's impossible. And so we have to look at the other avenue. The other avenue is that the bond between a man and a woman and their children, even adopted children, by the way, happens to fit into that. Uh, That bond is unique and special. It is a bond you have with your children that you have with nobody else's children. You might be compassionate towards other children. You might want the best for them. But in terms of what you should be willing to do for them, nothing near what you are willing to do for your own children. That's exactly the way it ought to be. And the result of that is that none of us in such a society would subscribe to the sentiments expressed in these few bars. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. See what I mean? We wouldn't believe that this great good is having nothing left to lose because you know full well that when you are surrounded by people with nothing left to lose there's nothing they won't do they're desperate people part of the reason that people behave themselves and that people refrain from reckless and destructive actions is because they know it will have an effect upon their children Yes, of course it will. And for many people, you know, uh, police and law enforcement is simply not enough to maintain tranquility and peace in a society. There are not enough policemen in the society to police all the policemen who are supposed to be policing the citizens. And, and you can tell that that's true. And so the, the, the prime basis for moral behavior on the part of most of us is the fact that we wouldn't just be hurting ourselves, we'd be hurting our children as well. And in the same way, doing good, working hard, building a business, uh, creating a legacy, establishing a family, all of these things we do because of the special relationship with our children. So would you rather live in a society where forced equality does indeed aim 
at providing all children with an identical shot at success with all the implications of that moral decision? Or are you willing to live in a society where, yes, there are going to be certain neighborhoods where I cannot afford a house? You know why? Because the people who live in that neighborhood are, for the most part, not all together, not that, you know, they are self made people, but for the most part, they are people who got a very good launching pad from their parents. And that neighborhood is, for the most part, made up of people living in those homes who got a good start from their parents. And guess what? They're giving a great start to their children. Is it any wonder that, in spite of of the government's attempts to solve this problem through busing. No wonder that the schools in those neighborhoods are better than the schools in neighborhoods where people believe that freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. It's a desirable thing. It's great to get to a point where there's nothing left to lose. You know why? Because government will take care of you in the final push anyways. Medical care, exactly the same thing. Right? People with a few extra dollars generally enjoy better health. Right? It's, it's a reality. And so you'll hear from the left this cry, Oh, the rich are getting richer. Well, yes, of course they are, and that's good for everybody. Again, just ask yourself, Would no matter where you are, you've only got to ask yourself two questions. Number one, are you making your life better now than it was yesterday? Is your tomorrow going to be better than your today? And if that's it, terrific. Are your children going to be better off than you were? Fantastic. If the answer is yes, good. The fact that there's a Bill Gates walking around there, why should that bother you? You are not a person torn apart by the unworthy emotion of envy. No, it's fine. And the only other question you have to ask yourself is, would I rather live in a neighborhood, a community, a town, a city, where all the other people have decided that the best thing is to have nothing and to just be taken care of by the government? Because freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. And everyone is equal in their misery. Everybody is sitting on their front porch all day or they're running, whatever they're doing. But nobody is building up anything. Nobody is committed to their children. Nobody's making certain that their children will enjoy a better life than they've had. Nobody's doing any of that. But we're all equal. Is that the world you think is a better one for you? Or is yours the world where everybody is trying to improve their children's lives by making sure that their children do have, will have more money and better health and better schools and a better education and a better shot in every... Yes, and not every child is going to end up the same. That is true. But you've got to ask yourself, does society work better when we live among strivers, eager, driven, focused by the ambition of giving their children more? Or would we rather live in a society where people are separated from their children? Not even in the kibbutz vision or the socialist dream vision of physically separated from their children, but a society in which 
every cultural and government agency works at driving a wedge between parents and children. The inheritance tax is one particularly blunt part of the axe that is used to drive that wedge between parents and children, so as that there is no material connection in that sense. But uh, there are so many other ways. Schools work to undermine the role of parents. Colleges tell newcoming freshman students all the time. Uh, They mock the parents' values. They encourage the children to be free of their parents uh, in, in so many different ways, including in the sexual arena. Everything is designed as much as possible to try and break this natural foundational link between a mother and a father and the children they brought into the world. And the two choices are very, very simple. Uh, The one choice is equality. The other choice is freedom. And we have to decide which ones we want. It at root is a moral choice with enormously frightening political implications where the full power of government is brought to bear on implementing whichever moral vision it is that wins. There is uh, so much more that you will be able to see as you apply these principles to everything that goes on around you, and you realize the extent to which, in a thousand different ways, a culture that has been aggressively secularized over the last 50 years, 60 years, serves to break the bond between parent and child, that seeks to undermine the natural force of the family unit. Almost everything that you see going on around you, politics, government, bureaucracies, entertainment, that's right, education, all of these forces serve to weaken the link between parent and child. And it's up to the happy warriors. It's up to us to do everything we can to overcome that and to try and get things right. The tools are available at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. The ones that I commend to your attention this week are the Thought Tool books. They're three volumes. You can get them separately or together. And the best news is that as of today, you can actually get all three of them on Amazon's Kindle as well as downloads. So uh, volumes one, two, and three of Thought Tools, that's the name of the book, Thought Tools, volume one, two, or three, uh, are available in either book form or on Kindle. Book form, you go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Kindle, you know where to go, and uh, that's how you do it, which means that that's as far as we're going until next week that we have the opportunity to be together again, and I get to enjoy the privilege of the special time sharing with you. But until then, I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.